Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be speaking to each one of us those things uh, that you intend for us today. Help us to be liberated by truth, uh, confronted where we need to be confronted, Lord, challenged. Uh, In the end, help us to lift our eyes up and see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing to major in the minors this morning, majoring in the minor prophets. I confess this, uh, the book we're in this morning has been one of the more difficult for me to prepare for. Uh, Even by minor prophet standards, this is a minor prophet. That is, if you have read something like Hosea because it's a love story or Zechariah because of its prophetic elements or whatever, Uh, Zephaniah is just not up at the top of anybody's list generally of Bible books. It's not well known. It's not often read. And there's, there's some reasons for that. You know, all of God's word is inspired and is profitable. Sometimes some passages seem, at first glance anyway, more profitable than others. Zephaniah does not develop any new theology. He doesn't bring up any new teachings. He doesn't have interesting literary structure like some of the other prophets. He, he doesn't bring really much original at all to the plate. So the question becomes kind of what's his value? And one commentator brought this up, and I believe this is the point. It seems that Zephaniah is meant especially in its arrangement in the Minor Prophets. Zephaniah is meant to be an exclamation point on the message of the Minor Prophets that have proceeded. That is, from Hosea to Habakkuk, Zephaniah is, in a sense, it's God's summation. It's his reiteration of the primary messages he's already given through the Minor Prophets, and actually through the Major Prophets as well. But thematically, he ties back repeatedly to the other Minor Prophets. He's not the last in time chronologically, Habakkuk would be, I believe. But he is, in his placement in the books of the Minor Prophets, he is the last of the pre-exile Minor Prophets. That is, when you're reading, you know, you start at uh, Joel, I think, who's probably in the 800 B.C.s, Zephaniah takes you up to the last point, basically, of Judah's history before They're captured before Jerusalem's destroyed by Babylon and they're taken captive. When you read the next three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, you're reading post-exile minor prophets. So Zephaniah is at the brink or the threshold, if you will, of the end of Israel's history in the land, remembering that the northern half was taken captive in 722 and dispersed. And Zephaniah is somewhere around 630 to 620 or so, his ministry basically, as far as a theme, takes us right up to the end of this pre-exile period. As the exclamation point, or as the summary of those passages that have come before, Zephaniah has three key messages, or he reiterates three key themes God's already brought up. And they are these. These are, hopefully they sound familiar because we've talked about them, but God will judge his own people. God's going to judge his own people, the Jews, God will judge the nations, but it doesn't all end in judgment. The third theme is that in the end, God brings about redemption and deliverance. That is, the the end of the story is good. It's uplifting, but it only comes after lots of judgment. 
Zephaniah's name, not sure, might mean watchman for Yahweh or hidden by Yahweh. He occupies also, when, when we talk about the time in Israel or Judah's history he's in, he is living and prophesying during, uh, sometime during good King Josiah's reign. And if you remember Israel's history, in fact, if you read Kings, you remember you'll read, it goes back and forth from Israel to Judah, and it'll tell you this king reigned and he was good, or this king reigned and he wasn't good. And Josiah is the last good king. He's the last one, and the four that follow him, and none of them are good. And, and of course, judgment proceeds from that. But Josiah is the last good or godly king. Israel had no godly kings. Judah had several. Josiah is the last of those. And this is interesting, too. There's so much judgment as you read Zephaniah. It's only three chapters, but, I mean, they're loaded with judgment. But it's interesting that if you remember that Zephaniah's prophecies and his ministry was part of the impetus behind Josiah's reformations, it gives those warning passages some value because you realize it produced something. God's warning of judgment in Zephaniah's own day produced Judah's last great revival. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit when we'll look at a passage out of that time. But Zephaniah's uh, prophecies on judgment helped produce Judah's last great revival. We'll read through passages of Zephaniah as we look at these three main themes. We'll start in chapter 1 related to God judging his own people. Zephaniah 1.1 The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Uh, Differences of opinion as to whether Hezekiah is the king or not. If so, then Zephaniah would be a descendant, a direct line descendant of the kings of Judah. During the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, God says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. He gets specific here, very wide, very broad statements about judgment. It becomes very specific here related to Judah and Jerusalem at verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests. And by the way, as you read through Zephaniah, you'll see various groups addressed and he starts here with leaders these are priests and you'll notice a progression here i'll mention in just a second but he starts with the priests the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host those who bow down and swear by the lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the lord and neither seek the lord nor inquire of him if you see this progression one group that's bringing judgment, the idolatrous priests and idolatry. They're, they're worshiping the hosts of heaven. This is brought out in Kings and Chronicles when it mentions Josiah's reforms. So spiritual adultery, you might say, or idolatry. But then you've also got this group. It says they swear by Yahweh. So they're, they're speaking in God's name on one hand. And they also swear by Molech. That is, they're syncretists. They're They're following God, the God of Israel on one hand, and the gods of the pagan nations on the other. And then this last category, those who turn back from following the Lord altogether. 
They neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. For them, they would be like agnostics or atheists today. God's not worth following, listening. God by any name. So there's a progression that are inciting God's judgment. Verse 7, Be silent before the Sovereign Lord. And sorry, but I'm going to comment throughout just so we make some ties here. It's a little bit disruptive. But be silent before the Sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Be silent before the Sovereign Lord is a phrase straight out of Habakkuk. Uh, The Lord is in His holy temple and all the earth keeps silent before Him. The day of the Lord is a tie back to Joel or Joel. So anyway, as you think about Zephaniah, you see these elements of all the minor prophets coming into play here. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those He invited. This is not a sacrifice we want to go to. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons, all those clad in foreign clothes. He started with the priests, and now he says, basically, the political leadership will now be punished as well. He says for the clothes they're wearing, I don't think this is meant to be somehow ultimately significant, but the sense is Israel that was supposed to be separate from the nations and distinct are simply taking on the ways and the dress and the manners of the nations around them. On that day I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, these are areas in Jerusalem, and a loud crash from the hills, wail you who live in the market district, all your merchants will be wiped out, religious leaders, political leaders, merchants, All who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. This is interesting. This is God's judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. His own people will be so thorough that after he mentions these large categories of people, religious leaders, political leaders, merchants, he says he's going to, it's as if he takes a bright light to seek every corner. His judgment on his own people is going to be absolutely thorough as if I'm taking a flashlight today and looking in the corners to find all the things that might be hiding. He says he will punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. There's a sense in which this is the ultimate insult. Uh, God is so meaningless that basically I'm in this complacent state of mind in which God is so meaningless, he's irrelevant. God won't do anything good or bad. I don't need to pray for him as if he'll help me, and I don't need to fear him as if he'll judge me. He's irrelevant. And remember that for Israel, this is the nation on the earth whose history with God is the God who interrupted history and who came down and demonstrated with the plagues in Egypt that he was the God over all, over all gods in Egypt. And then the miracles in the desert and then driving out the nations before them. Francis Schaeffer's word, this was the God who acts in space and time. Well, these people in Israel, they just say God's irrelevant. He's he's not hot or cold. He's not good or bad. He's not worth even thinking about. God says that's another reason that judgment is coming. He says their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. Going on at verse 14, he says, The great day of the Lord is near. And Zephaniah uses this phrase, day of the Lord, more often than any of the other prophets. And broadly, the day of the Lord includes both the sense of God bringing in judgment to make things right. So it's a, it's a terrible time on one hand. But also the day of the Lord includes the theme of ultimate deliverance and redemption. It's both. Verse 15 
Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, trouble and ruin, darkness and gloom, clouds and blackness. This is the judgment God says He's bringing on His people. This is what's coming. Go up to chapter 2, verse 1. If this was all there was, you might just think, if you lived in Zephaniah's day, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die, or there's nothing to do, so we'll just take our licks when they come. But listen to what God follows up. All these statements of judgment, this is what He follows up with. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation. Before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what He commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. This gather together is the thought of a national assembly for repentance. And then seek the Lord, you humble of the land, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. In other words, all these declarations of judgment and the articulation of the depths to which God's going to do to bring judgment on His own people, in a sense, it's not all that there is. It's not, God's not just giving tomorrow's headline today. He's talking about that judgment because even in the message of judgment, He is calling His own people to repentance to turn around. So this harsh statement about how thorough God will be in His judgment is actually meant to inspire repentance and a change of heart and a change of mind and to bring people back to God. That's the hope. That's the thought. And that's why this message to Judah doesn't end with judgment. It ends with God's appeal for their turn of heart, for them returning back to Him. This is, by the way, sometimes if you've read your Old Testament, especially the prophets, um, you know, you, you'll read through passage after passage, chapter after chapter of judgment. I mean, I think of books like Jeremiah especially. And it might get depressing or, or I don't know, it, it's repetitive and it's a lot of the same stuff. But you know, it's no different than a parent addressing their child today in which they're telling them about what's going to happen if or what's going to happen when. And the parent doesn't say it once and stop. They say it over and over and over again because they're wanting to keep their child from the worst thing that can happen. So when you read the prophets and it sounds like God's got one tune, you know, the one, the one tune fiddle guy, and he always plays the same theme, it's actually to the degree that the scriptures are full of passages of judgment, it's actually a message with a hope. Because God's hope and one of the purposes in spelling out judgment is the hope that people will get serious and repent and be restored. In the last of the Back to the Future movies my family watched last week, I think, um, Marty, young Marty, young Michael J. Fox, uh, is back in time in the Wild West with Dr. Brown. And Marty's this little guy with a chip on his shoulder. You know, and he, he's a sucker uh, to let his temper get the best of him. You know, just a little provocation the people around him knows will set off his angry response and he'll do something stupid. So when he's back in the Wild West and Dr. Brown's been to his future already, but now they're in the past, Dr. Brown tells him, Marty, you've got to control your temper because you're going to be in an accident that's going to change the rest of your life. 
And he says, what do you mean, what do you mean? He says, oh, well, you'll just do what you have to do. But he's heard the doctor tell him that in his future, he's going to make this stupid decision based on this quick, angry response that's going to cost him dearly. And then when he's back there, he meets his great-great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather sees how easily he's ticked and how easily he's suckered into doing something stupid by somebody who just gets him to make this angry response. And he warns him. And so later when he goes back to his own time, he's faced with the time. He doesn't know it, but he's faced with a choice about whether to enter this drag race or not. And he chooses not to. And when he sees that if he'd done it, he would have crashed into this other car, he realizes the warnings paid off, he changed his decision, and disaster was averted. And that's actually what God's trying to do here. He's talking about the disaster that's coming, but if you'll humble yourselves... If you'll gather together, actually God says judgment's still coming, but you can find a refuge in the judgment. Or in Josiah's case, which you'll see in a minute, judgment can be put off. God can say, I would do it now, but I'm going to hold off if you'll turn, and it will happen later. If you think of Jonah and Nineveh, God does destroy Nineveh not long after Zephaniah. But that nation and that city survived for a generation because they repented in the days of Jonah. That's exactly the same thing, as a matter of fact, that happens with Josiah. Recently, on a more painful note, the Topeka Capital Journal reported a sting operation. Uh, This is painful for me to even talk about, but uh, they arrested, I think it was eight men, who over a period of weeks were talking with what they thought were very young, underage girls, 12 and 13-year-old girls. And over a period of weeks, these guys all made appointments for a liaison, all adult grown men, to meet with these 12 and 13-year-old girls. The the trouble was, it was the sheriff's department. There never were 12 and 13-year-old girls they were interacting with. So one by one, these guys showed up at a house to meet with what they thought were these young girls, and they met the sheriff's department. And all of a sudden, the lights come on, and they know exactly what's going on. I really appreciated the fact that in the Topeka Capital article, they said, they included this. They said the responses of the men ranged from one guy who laid on the floor laughing just the irony or whatever, and this guy, whatever. But anyway, lay on the floor laughing. To this, to a man weeping and praying. A man weeping and praying. Now, this is a guy, he's weeping and praying. He knows something about God. And can you imagine, you know, if you and I, we don't, we don't rob a bank as our first impulse towards evil. We make little decisions along the way before we rob the bank. And, you know, our conscience warns us. And God brings other warnings in for us. And if we read our Bible, we get those too. And, you know, the truth is if you ignore all of those, then eventually the judgment, the axe does fall. But it's not because there's no warnings. And so in Zephaniah, we've got this great series of warnings with a hope at the end, if you'll turn. There's mercy, and if you don't, there's nothing but judgment. In Josiah's day, in Zephaniah's day, King Josiah became king at eight. Eighteen years into his kingdom, into his rule, he's in his mid-twenties, 
he begins this reformation. And the reformation starts with repairing the temple. And it's apparently in response to Zephaniah's ministry that this reformation begins, that this young king begins restoring the nation to what he knew God wanted it to be. As they're restoring the temple, they find the book of the law. And this, this floors me, but, you know, we have Bibles on every shelf. I, we've probably got 20 Bibles at our house. In Israel, because of the evil kings that had preceded, Josiah's fathers and grandfathers, the book of the law wasn't to be found. This was a new thing. Now, they were still going through some of the motions. They didn't have the Torah, the first five books of Moses to go through. Well, they find the book of the law, and they read it, and they read it to King Josiah. And can you imagine what he's thinking when he hears Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, when if you do these things and are faithful, you'll be the head of the nations, you'll lend, you'll have no oppression, you'll be rich, etc., etc. But if you don't keep the covenant, you'll be cursed. And boy, it goes into chapters of curses. Josiah hears this, the warnings, and he tears his clothes, and he's sick over the sins of the nation, especially now in light of what God had promised about the covenant. So he sends some messengers to Huldah the prophetess, somebody who he knew spoke for God, and said, basically, go find out where are we at and what do we do in light of what we now know. So Second Chronicles 34, you can also read the same story in Second Kings 22, Huldah says, tell the man who sent you to me, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, all the curses written in the book which they have read in the, in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place. It shall not be quenched. It is coming. But, to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. Here's King Josiah. He knows a little bit about what's right, and he implements this reformation. But when he gets more information, he's terrified at what is certainly going to be God's judgment. And God says, my judgment is coming. It's not going to be averted. It will come. But because you humbled yourself at the warnings, at the prophetic voice of judgment you will be spared you won't see it it will not happen in your day and under Josiah if you read these passages in Kings and Chronicles you'll see the temple is purged and restored worship is restored in the temple all the high places all the places of idolatry in his day are wiped out there's great reformation under Josiah and God's judgment is displaced we know it, it ultimately happens both in 605 and 586. Ultimately, Jerusalem is destroyed in 586. But it's not in his day. He found, if you will, shelter from the storm. God still extended mercy because he responded to the warnings. So, 
God judges because He must. He's a God of righteousness and He's holy and He's just, so He must judge. But in all those heavy, sometimes depressing passages about judgment, God gives them with the element of hope. There's still hope even when judgment is sure. God moves on to talk about judgment of the nations. That was judgment towards His own people. In chapter 2, do you remember in Hosea, or excuse me, Amos, When we talked about Amos, we saw that God talked about judgment of all the nations and he actually went back and forth around the whole nation of Israel so that they would kind of get the point that maybe in the end they were the only one who hadn't been mentioned. Well, when God talks about judging the nations, he sort of does the same thing. He puts his his arrow or his compass all the way around Judah. Starting with the west, he says, Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. You know, if you've read your Bible history portions, that these are all the Philistine cities on the Mediterranean coast west of Israel. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Carathite people. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you and none will be left. Starts west, says, I'm going to destroy the nations west of you, Judah. Then he goes east. Verse 8, I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. Moving south. You too, O Cushites, Cushites in Egypt and Africa, Ethiopia, you Cushites will be slain by the sword, the briefest of those. And then moving north at verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts, all who pass by her scoff. And shake their fists. And remember, when this is given, Nineveh is still the capital of the world. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Babylon has not come on the scene yet as the new empire. Nineveh is still the, the city of cities on the earth. God mentions their destruction here. So God has gone around the points of the compass to say, I am going to judge all the nations. It's In a sense, it's as if no matter where the nations lie in relation to God's land, God is going to judge the nations. And then he summarizes later in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world, will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. God starts by saying, I'm going to judge my people for unrighteousness, but it won't stop there. I'm going to judge the nations also. Remember in Zephaniah's day, in fact, it, had, it was common in Israel or Judah at the time too, people worshipped all kinds of gods. So you had gods of the high places and gods of the valleys. And you had gods of Egypt and you had gods of uh, Babylon. And basically God says, you know what, in the end, uh, I'm not a god who's limited to geography or compass points or whatever. I'm not a god of Israel only. I'm the god of all the earth. And I'm not just going to judge my people. Judgment begins with God's own people, but it spreads from there. And God says, in the end, I'm the God of gods. I'm the Lord of lords, and I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to make things right, not just in my own household, but throughout the world. 
throughout the world. I find this particularly helpful today. You know, you can look in history and you can think that God's out of control, that God's not in control. I mean, uh, if you live during World War II and you see Hitler marching across Europe and Mussolini in the south, you might think God's out of control. But God says, no, I'm the judge of all the nations. Or in the Cold War era when Stalin came in and he's gobbling up Eastern Europe and setting up satellites around the world, communism, it looks like God's not in control. Or today, when terrorists are murdering people in their own nations and around the world in the name of Allah, and Muslims, you know, the bottom line is, if you've been to Sunday schools and seen some of the, some of the uh, DVDs we've watched on Islam, that those who name Allah as their God and profess the Quran, the most militant of them want to rule the world under Islam, under the Sharia, the laws of Islam. They want to bring their God over the rule of the world so that Islam is the world-dominating power and influence. And so you see this going on again in our day. And God says in Zephaniah's day with gods all over, you know, Molech and Ishtar and whatever, or in our day, it's the same thing. God's still saying the fact that he has power to judge the nations means he's God. He's not a little God. He's not a demigod. He's not a limited God. He's the God over all the earth. And he's going to judge not just his own people, but all the nations of the world as well. This message is given to Israel just figure about 600 B.C. So 2,600 years ago. And you know, these ultimate judgments, they've never happened yet. Israel was taken captive in 586 and they're restored. And we'll read about that in the next of the Minor Prophets. But these things have never happened ultimately. These things are yet future. They will still come about. And in fact, some of the Minor Prophets in Zechariah will look a little bit more closely at this. But these things have yet to come about. But there's a sense in which the dynamics were the same in Zephaniah's day and in ours. There's many who claim to be God and claim rule, but God says in the end, I'm going to judge my people and I will judge the nations of the world. God does not end on a note of judgment, whether it's about his own people or if it's about the nations of the world. He actually ends on this high note. So if you skip down in chapter 3 to verse 9, God says this about the future. I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder or uh, in one line with one purpose, with one intention. Verse 11, on that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. I will leave within you the meek and humble, those who have responded to the warning, who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing or rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Remember when this is given... Even the use of the term Israel means a reunited nation because it's only Judah in the south when this is written. So when he says Israel, it's the thought that all of Israel would be reunited. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Well, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. 
On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. And listen to this. If I have one favorite verse in Zephaniah, it's this one. And this has got to be one of the loveliest pictures or portraits in all of the Bible. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now just think, of, you've got to let this sink in. You've got to get, give this image some time to percolate a little bit. He set up at verse 14, Daughter of Zion, sing and shout aloud. Rejoice with all your heart. So he calls his people back. They're restored. <clears throat> Things are put right. And he says, this is the time for you to rejoice. Come in and rejoice. Then he turns around and says, And I am rejoicing over you. And when he tells them to come into Zion singing, God says, and I am singing over you. Now, you know, if you, have you ever seen a big burly dad pick up a little tiny baby and, you know, pat it after it's fed or whatever, and he quiets it, this big burly powerful dad with this little tiny baby, and he'll pat it and he'll gently speak to it to calm it and to soothe it. And whether, if he's a good singer or not, you know, even singing might be soothing to this little one. Well, that's the picture here. So, on one hand, you say, God's telling his people, come in and rejoice. But on the other, this is mind-blowing to me, God says he turns around and he rejoices with singing over his people. I mean, it couldn't be more tender than this. And... um, have you ever seen the movie Babe where the old farmer dances the jig in front of the pig because he's trying to cheer it up? And, you know, it's hilarious uh, on one hand, but it's really tender on the other because this old gruff farmer basically is willing to do whatever it takes to make this pig happy again. Well, can you imagine the creator of the heavens and the earth saying that he's going to pick up his people, you and me and the Jews, Israel, restored, And it'll be like being held on your dad's big powerful shoulder and he'll be singing in his delight over you. It it doesn't get any more tender, any better than this. And you know, this is the place of ultimate security. There's no thought of judgment left here. You're safe in your father's arms. He's soothing you with his love. He's not just glad to see you. He's actually singing over his delight with you and in you. This is as good as it gets. This is in Zephaniah. You know, again, one of those books that we tend not to look at. He goes on at verse 19 and says, I will rescue the lame and and gather those who've been scattered. In other words, it won't matter if they can get back to me. I'm getting them back. The lame who can't walk, I'm bringing them back. I'll give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. In the end, after the warning and after the judgment, God says that's not the end. The end is this incredible restoration and peace and joy. That's how the prophets end. And when God puts the exclamation on the message of the pre-exile minor prophets, It ends with this upbeat note of ultimate deliverance and redemption. And think about this. When you read the last book of the Bible, I mean, you read chapter after chapter of bloody, gruesome details and judgments. In fact, 
you know, the six bowls of wrath God pours out, and the, or the seven, and the trumpets of wrath, and it's God's wrath, His judgment, coming down on all the nations of the earth. But how does the book of Revelation end? It doesn't end in judgment. It ends with God saying, I've taken care of judgment, and now those who have humbled themselves and placed their trust in me, well, what's their end? Well, they're in the new heaven and the new earth. And then they're in the city, the new Jerusalem, and there's water flowing down, the water of life flowing down from God's very throne, just like Ezekiel. And there's the tree of life from Genesis, the tree of life for the healing of the nations. And all the nations come forward, and God is the light. You don't need the sun or the moon anymore. And all tears are wiped away. And, and you enter this promised land, this promised eternity, where there's pleasures and joy forevermore, Psalm 16. See, that's how God says it ends. So in a passage like Zephaniah, it sounds like doom and gloom, but it ends on this high exalted note of redemption and deliverance. And you read a book like Revelation, the last one, God's final exclamation of exclamations, it has all these elements of judgment in it, but it ends on this high redemptive note of ultimate deliverance and, and salvation. And that's why it ends with, Come, Lord Jesus. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And the response is, boy, do it, Lord. We're ready for the end of the story. We're ready to get past the judgment, Lord, so we can get to that ultimate happy ending. So Zephaniah's place in the Minor Prophets, helpful because it's a reiteration of what God considered important in the Minor Prophets, all of the prophets actually, but he's going to judge his people. He's going to do right as he needs to by his own people. He's going to judge the nations because he's the Lord of heaven and earth. There's no other gods above him. But in the end, when judgment is accomplished, he's going to bring in redemption. And think of this. Always God's ultimate act of judgment is his own son on the cross. We'll have the Lord's Supper here later. Eric's going to introduce that for us during worship. God will judge. He judged his own son for sin. He's going to judge. He must. But, of course, even that judgment was to bring about redemption. So God is not the God who delights in judgment. And, again, I've said it before, but Isaiah says God calls it his strange work. It's not what he's typically identified by. He's a God of mercy and compassion. And his judgment of his own son on the cross allows him to write the happy end to the story for Zephaniah or for Revelation or for you and I. He will judge, but there's mercy in the end, because he is a God of justice and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck by this image of your rejoicing over your people, of your omnipotent power subdued and brought down to the level of Jews and Gentiles who call on your name in hope and calling on you for mercy, Lord, and you pick them up, you pick us up, and you soothe us in your love and you delight in us, and you rejoice over us with singing. And Lord, if we don't take away any other thought or image today, help us to remember the kind of tender and compassionate God you are who rejoices over his people with singing. In Jesus' name, amen.